sitting right next to me. Either way, say hello, Ken. I've already come from planet Houston. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Fair. Well, welcome. Uh, this is a great episode. I really enjoyed this episode, though, uh, oddly enough, in the Cushman book that I was reading, did not have a lot of great things to say. I said it's a fine episode, but just didn't like uh, really notice a lot of the faults that ha occurred in this episode, which, of course, we will get into, as always. So here we are, the court-martial, 14th episode filmed, the 22nd episode aired. I noticed that this, uh, there must be a reason for this when I first watched it. I always watch the episode first, then go back and get the behind-the-scenes stuff on it. So that was one of the first notes I made was, was like, wow, this is episode 22, there must be a reason for it. And of course I figured it must be because right afterwards another big court-martial episode or, you know, uh, trial episode in uh, The Menagerie. So, but it was convenient for them. It really worked out because they got a, basically a two for one in, uh, uh, in not only the court martial, the courtroom itself that they built, but also as we see the uh, first appearance of the formal wear in this episode. So they got their dress uniforms. We see them for the first time here in yep. terms of the production order. We'll see them right away in the menagerie. Yeah. And then they're going to wear them again in Journey to Babel. Yep. And they're going to show up now that they've got them. They're gonna put them on whenever there's an ambassador or something right. formal going on. It's like the uh, it's like the green, the green catches. Yeah, yeah, the green, yes, exactly. Like, uh, oh man, what was I thinking about this? I was thinking about this the other day. The the green like relaxing shirt, like you know, it's like this is my off duty wear or something. It kind of reminds me of you know Picard's suede jacket that he wears when he's off work. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the book, which I keep telling everybody about. It's a great book written by Mark Cushman called uh, These Are the Voyages, Season 1. Uh, one of the great things about this book is that it has a lot of the like internal memos, a lot of the back and forth about writing each episode. So we get to see, especially in this episode, we get to see a lot of everybody sort of throwing in ideas, you know, uh, Mankiewicz, who wrote, who wrote the episode, obviously had a large say in, you know, uh, even coming up with the episode, of course, and then uh, we see Roddenberry, and then Rob Robert Justman, then Gene Kuhn, and all these other people who are sort of throwing in these ideas who really help build what I think is a pretty great episode. Mm -hmm. But I'm always a sucker for trials, you know what I mean? Like, uh, this year, Better Call Saul, when they did that episode, uh, you know, when they took down Chuck, uh, A Few Good Men, which I not only seen a million times, but was also in... You know, I just, I love a good trial story. You know, I could always watch a good courtroom drama. So we've, we've seen uh, episodes that had elements of police procedurals. Uh, our last episode was a murder mystery. Mm -hmm. And in this episode, we're going to get a courtroom drama. Yeah. So it was, uh, uh, Roddenberry really took a, uh, 
took an interesting stance on this one. I'm going to get into it a little bit more uh, once we get into some of the original story ideas for this episode. But uh, he really um, he really did a lot to strengthen Kirk, Kirk's role. Obviously, Kirk was kind of his baby. He came up with the idea, and he really has an idea of who uh, he is. Um, he, you know, he continues to want to show the burden of command, it being a lonely, you know, being a lonely thing on top. And uh, I really felt that, like, him calling the underlings, you know, like, hey, Fred, good job today, uh, you know, taking care of the phaser banks or whatever. He felt like that just made him made him a weaker character. So, so Don Mankiewicz, who's the guy who originally came up with the story uh, for this episode, uh, was the son of legendary screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, who shared an Academy Award with Orson Welles for co-writing Citizen Kane. And then his nephew, Joseph, was an award, uh, an Oscar-winning screenwriter for screenplays for both Guys and Dolls and All About Eve. So uh, this is a true, like, dynasty family, as they call them in Hollywood. So his idea was he wanted to come up with a story that could help keep the costs down. However, his first draft of this was anything but. Uh, at one point, um, towards the end of it, uh, Cogley had this old, like, rocket that he called a jalopy. And uh, they had a feeling that maybe what had happened is when the, when the pod, which was then called something else that I can't remember was jettisoned out of the Enterprise that he might have landed on an asteroid. So they were going to then take the jalopy and then go to the asteroid and then find him on the asteroid. Clearly, in the 1960s, to do those special effects and to take care of all of that stuff was completely ridiculous. So uh, that was one of the things that they uh, immediately, you know, struck from the from the idea. There was also a Cogley Jr. and a Cogley Sr. Cogley Sr. was kind of what we end up seeing in the episode, the book guy. And his son was much more about, you know, computers and understanding how they worked. And he even at some point leaves the trial, the tribunal, because he doesn't think that Kirk is telling the truth. So it's just another way of putting, not only were they stacking the odds against Kirk more and more in, in the original script, but that also it was uh, they just had the dichotomy between like what is the you know computer goodness and book goodness you know that's a main thread of this story. They also had this thing called the IRRU, which was uh, basically what it was is that the computer had developed a personality, and that um, Finney, uh, because he was like basically the records keeper, the caretaker of the computer, the computer had an affinity for Finney. Wow, that's really hard to say. An affinity for Finney. And uh, and then because of Finney did not like Kirk. So there are a couple interesting things that lead to this, of course, is like he obviously the computer itself is the one that sort of changes the evidence against Kirk. And then not only that, but also helps Finney, you know, stay hidden. Uh, the other fun thing that a lot of people really enjoyed about that idea was that it's like Kirk's own ship is turning against him, you know, his most beloved thing. Which obviously we see more of in this episode, how much Kirk loves the uh, the Enterprise. Roddenberry, though, uh, immediately like also like put out a, wanted to put out that fire as well. That was another thing uh, he wanted to strike from the episode because he was worried that like the court martial drama of it, which is like this really amazing idea he loved, was going to be overshadowed by the gimmick, as he called it, of a vengeful computer. He's like, that's just a little too sci-fi, possibly, for us. You know, a little too 1950s Flash Gordon or whatever. Oh, well, we'll do a, an episode with uh, Daystrom. Yeah. And well, that, that, that comes back out of this. It stems out of this episode. Gene L. Kuhn always kept it in his mind. They actually mentioned that in the book. So this is a, a, another funny thing about this episode and also why it made the cut. 
as opposed to some of the other episodes we've seen that weren't quite action adventure that may have gotten, that may have never made it to air, is that somehow in the production company, this, the copy of, uh, or the treatment of this never got sent to NBC. So there's always, once they got a treatment that they liked and loved, they sent it to NBC, NBC would give them notes about it and say whether or not to go forward or, you know, change this, do this, blah, blah, blah. But somehow the treatment for this episode like fell through the cracks and never got there. So when the sixth ver copy of this script then made it to NBC, obviously NBC and Stan Robertson were like, ah, we're not happy with this. You know, it's again, lacking some of the action and adventure that we, you know, Star Trek has quote promised. You know, it's one of the things that they keep saying. Uh, he felt the script was too cerebral. He thought that uh, putting man against machine was preachy. You know, that the whole idea that we've been discussing. Uh, he felt that through the, though the ideas were similar to Kane Mutiny, that this version of the Star Trek story uh, wasn't visual enough to hold viewers. That was what his big concern was. But because uh, it was already so late in the process and they were getting ready to shoot it, he said, well, you gotta do it, go do it. I'd make notes, but at this point it's pointless, is what he says. Mark Daniels is back, directing his third job on Star Trek. A couple of other things worthy of note in this episode was uh, the first time we hear Starfleet and Starfleet Command. That was uh, Gene Coons uh, doing the Starfleet dress uniform, which we've mentioned already. Commodore. Commodore, yes. Starbase, Commodore Stone was the highest ranking black person yet seen on Star Trek. Uh, so, you know, props to them for that. The African-American uh, actor, oh, African-Canadian actor, excuse me. Percy Rodriguez was hired to play Commodore Stone. He had met, he had such a commanding presence that he had found many roles on screen for black viewers. Uh, he had played a doctor on Bad Casey, a sheriff on The Fugitive, and an African leader on The Man of Uncle, as well as a debonair assassin on The Wild Wild West. Elijah Cook, who's the one who uh, was who plays Samuel Cogley, had over 200 screen appearances, including working with Bogart in The Big Sleep and The Maltese Falcon and The Maltese Falcon. The biggest, and I like him in this episode. I think he's a really cool actor. He's like perfect for this role. It, it's great. Uh, the problem with him was is that he couldn't remember anything past one line. Oh. So in some of his speeches, they'd like literally film a line, cut. He'd read his line. He'd say his line. He'd read his line. So that's another thing that put this uh, episode, of course, as with many of the episodes that we've seen on Star Trek, behind schedule. So. So I think without any further ado, let's get into this episode and enjoy. The court martial. So, before we do that. Okay, before we do that. So, this kind of story about an accident or something goes wrong on a ship doing normal routine things. Yes. Right? It's a story. It just, you know, two months ago, we had the uh, USS Fitzgerald, a destroyer in Japanese water, not far from Tokyo, bumps into a Japanese container ship. And it's a very similar kind of a story. Ship, you know, doing its normal thing. In this case, Ion Storm. In this case, traveling through congested waters. 400 to 500 ships pass through these waters every day. Accident happened. Lives are lost. First, there's an inquiry to find out if there was wrongdoing or, or whether or not everything was done by the book and things just turned out badly. And then when something turns out to be a problem, then there's further investigation. So, in the case of the Fitzgerald, we have this case in which... Uh, Officials who spoke to CNN say, quote, They did nothing until the last second, one official told the outlet. Quote, A slew of things went wrong. So there's, the investigation is torn out poorly. It's very likely that there's going to be 
court martials. Someone will get in trouble, maybe multiple people. And that's basically what's going on here. Yeah. And there are many, many injuries in that one too, right? Yeah, six or seven yeah. people end up uh, missing, dead. And again, they did not know whether the people were outside the ship or inside the ship. And as we'll find out here, there's a search that will be conducted inside the ship. It turns up nothing, and then they think, well, he was lost with the jettison. Exactly. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. Stardate 2947.3. So, uh, I, so as I told you last time, I like comparing the, the remastered to the old one. But when I went on YouTube, for some reason, this episode and this episode alone it was, was singled out by CBS and taken off. Oh, no. So I really wanted to see what was in the original versus of this because the remastered... So much of this looks amazing. The Starbase yeah. looks amazing. You know, we got the two in that first shot in this episode. We got the two constitutional class ships, you know, over the planet. Everything looked really awesome. So I would have loved to have seen, even as bad as it may have been, what it looked like, you know, mm -hmm. in the original episode. And sure enough, YouTube had taken it down based on CBS. Oh. But still, there were other episodes that were still on there. It was just that one, for some reason, taken down. So uh, it turns out, according to the captain's log, they've been traveling through an ion storm, and uh, we find that one crewman is dead. The ship damage is pretty extensive, so there's a star a layover on Starbase 811. Or was it just 11? The original name of this episode was the court-martial at Starbase, Starbase 811, but I can't remember if they changed it from 811 or just to 11. Either way. We find Kirk signing his disposition there with Commodore Stone. Spock is late. You can tell the, in the office that they're kind of waiting for him to get there. And then when he gets there, he's hesitant to turn over the evidence. Stone just grabs the, grabs the, you know, the disc right out of his hand, the three and a quarter disc, uh, data disc, and he slides it in the cuter before anything else can happen. And as we're watching Spock, we can tell that there's something wrong, that something, some information he finds there doesn't really jive well with him. Uh, then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Finney's daughter Jamie comes running in and starts hitting him and then calls Kirk a murderer. Dun, dun, dun. So if we break down the story here for a second, it's a really good opening teaser and it's something that, you know, you could almost copy and do sort of every, every week, right? So we build a little bit of, we start building a little bit of a ten tension and we build more tension and more tension, right? So like, you know, we already set up the question of what got Finney killed. You know, there's already a quite, you know, we know that he was in the pod and blah, blah, blah. But it, everybody's even acting weird, like Stone's acting a little bit weird, and Kirk's even a little bit blah. So we got the tension building. Then Spock shows up, or Spock's late. More tension. Why is Spock late? Spock's never late. Then he shows up, and he's hesitant. This is odd for Spock. More tension. Then Jamie walks in and accuses, you know, Kirk of murder. More and more and more tension. We also get the, the good tension building effect of Spock's going to give us useful information, but he's interrupted. Yes. Exactly. We don't, so we know there's information that we don't have. Well, there's a lot of that, too, at the beginning of this, because we don't know exactly what happened. Right now, we're just taking Kirk's word on it. And then, you know, uh, you know, Kirk even calls the guy who died, Ben, his friend. You know, but Jamie says, no, 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 you know, you hated him all his life, and blah, blah, blah. So it's a very... Right at the beginning, you're just like, okay, everything is wrong in this episode. I don't even know what's happening. Two minutes and 11 seconds... Sec you know, two minutes and 11 seconds in, and tension's already notched. And then in the next 20 seconds before commercial, Kirk's deposition finds an inaccuracy. 
Apparently, according to the, the data tapes, Kirk said that he had jettisoned the pod after the red alert, but that the computer tape says it was before the red alert. Now he's confined to the base with a possible court-martial. Dunk, dunk, dunk. Our hero is on trial. So there's two issues here. One is, did you follow a procedure? Mm -hmm. You said you did. The data tape shows that you didn't. And the second is, are you lying to cover up your wrongdoing? Yeah. Because that would be a second... And so they bring up both uh, the error in judgment and the attempt to conceal it. Absolutely. Back from the opening credits, 2948.5. We see the damaged Enterprise. I thought that was kind of a cool shot. And now we're in like a 24th century cocktail lounge. Uh, Kirk's graduating class apparently is well represented <laughs> in this random star base. But that's all right. Strange stares and looks that he's getting from people. Uh, two other officers call, uh, hey, Ben was a friend of mine, they basically said. Kirk says, what, can you speak plainer than that? McCoy tries to pull him away, but Kirk stands his ground. He's like, what are you trying to say? And they're like, you tell us. Uh, I think you made up your mind, says Kirk. Excuse me. Boom. He walk out. Walks out. I guess he's lucky it's a tribunal as opposed to a jury trial. <laughs> I don't think the jury trial is going to be very favorable to him. Then in walks this, this blonde lady in the swankiest of 60s dresses. Uh, McCoy approaches her, uh, assuring her that uh, that was absolutely James T. Kirk. And she's, she's like, uh, oh yeah, I know. My name's Ariel Shaw. I'm an old friend. And uh, <laughs> McCoy says, how come all of my friends look like old doctors and all of his old friends look like you? Except, of course, we have just seen a bunch of his old friends. <laughs> right, exactly. And they look like a bunch of Starfleet officers. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very good point. We always have to be careful when, you know, one of the three ways that we learn things about characters is one of them is what characters say about other characters. Yeah. But they are not reliable. True. And in this example, here we see that Kirk has as his friends, people he went up and thought, hey, how's it going? What's, yeah. you know, my old buddies from, you know, and they're all Starfleet officers who look, you know, not unlike him. Mm -hmm. And then she, who's the exception, is the one that McCoy fixates yeah, on. Of and course. Goes, How come all his old friends look like you? <laughs> well, except for those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of those guys behind me. Uh, so we find out a little bit more uh, about what happened in the past, why uh, Jamie insists that uh, Kirk never liked, never liked her father, Ben. Uh, he was an instructor, but Kirk was a midshipman. Uh, Jamie, in fact, is even named after Kirk. That's an important piece of information. Uh, then they were later stationed together aboard the uh, USS Republic. Uh, Kirk believed that uh, Kirk had relieved Ben on a shift one day and had found an open circuit in the, uh, you know, what's it called? The The thing. Uh, Kirk, uh, it could have destroyed the ship. So Kirk logs the incident as he's required to. Finney got a reprimand and it sends him down to the promotion list. So Finney blames Kirk, we find out. He had spent too much time as an instructor, and so this reprimand really, like, put him behind. So here we see that we're in a world in which the rules are strict mm -hmm. and strictly enforced. And so this one mistake, oversight, ends up being a career-ruining error. Yeah. They ask him why he sent, uh, of all people, Finney to the pod. Kirk says uh, his name is at the top of the roster. And we find out later it wasn't even him. It was Spock. Spock well, was even like, we're going to send Finney. Well, he was just reading the roster. Right, exactly. And then Kirk, just without any kind of, well, gee, do we want to do what the roster says? He said, well, we 
Right, what was he going to do? Question? He's like, that's the guy, that's the guy. Let's send him down there. Uh, so the storm gets worse. He's like, I gave uh, Finney those seconds to get out. The computer, which automatically logs everything, confirms otherwise. It would be impossible for the, sh uh, for the ship to be wrong. Dun, dun, dun. Man versus machine. Uh, Stone stops the recording to give Kirk an out. You know, maybe it was mental fatigue. Physical weariness are to blame. He tells Kirk to admit nothing and take the reprimand as it is. No captain has ever gone under a court-martial. Kirk says he would rather stand trial than have his record be smirched by what could be a lie or looked at as a lie or a cover-up. Then you draw the general court, says Stone. Draw it? I demand it! Right here, right now, says Kirk. <laughs> and we go to commercial. So here we have the exact same situation. Kirk knows that if he takes the reprimand, it'll be a career damage. It'll be like Finney. It'll be like Finney. Yeah. Um, and they tell him what'll happen. You'll get ground duty. So he'll be like some star, uh, star base administrator. Right. Logging in shipments of, you know, arrivals and departures here. And well, you know, this ship will be in here from these dates, and this ship will be here, and repairs will be done. Like we see. Uh, Stone do at the beginning of this one. Yeah. He calls it and says, uh, the Intrepid is due to be repaired, but uh, scratch that. Meet the Enterprise first. A1 priority. A1 priority. Two things I want to say here. First of all, it was at this point that I started to suspect that maybe I knew how this ended. Again, I always watch the show, then read the book, so I never want to be spoiled about what happens in the show. And I will say that, sure enough, I was right about how this one ended. I did remember it. Somewhere in the back of my brain, like, this story just came to the forefront. I was like, dang, I remember this now. Uh, you know, secondly, I love a good court drama. That was the other point I was going to make here. Uh, back from commercial, 2948.9. Kirk is back in the bar, and he runs into the lady again. She says, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> and they reminisce a bit. She's a lawyer in the judge advocate's office. I wrote to myself, well, this isn't going to end well, and I'm right, because sure enough, she turns out that she's the prosecutor. Which is funny, though, she does still give him... How does Cogley come into this? Like, she says, your best choice for representation is going to be Sam Cogley, and he'll meet you tomorrow. It's almost as if she called him and was like, Cogley, you gotta take this. She did. I guess. Yeah. So it's funny, because we got a prosecutor who's like, I'm all for Kirk, except for when I'm standing in the courtroom and I have to prosecute him. So... You know, I've read other reviews in which people are like, this is totally a conflict of interest. They're yeah. friends. They've had, they, they're old flames. They got a relationship. You know, she's re recommending, you know, opposing counsel. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, this thing is littered with conflicts of interest. Right. And in fact, I was just, we were just, like I said, uh, I told you before we started recording, Jamie and I are watching Broadchurch season three, and one of the cops, it turns out like her father is becomes a suspect and so like so now they had to like excuse her from the thing because they were worried that like you could have told them something or she could have you know told yeah. you and blah 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 like anything could have happened so yeah here we are in a situation again total conflict of interests so i think part of what's going on here is the presumption that in the future with our better version of humanity and starfleet with its strict rules strictly adhered to the idea is that she's she's going to do her duty no matter what. Mm -hmm. That her friendship with Kirk will not prevent her from doing her duty to the best of her ability. She can recommend the best adversary. She'll still do her job uh, to the best of her ability. The other thing going on here is that where are you going to find another Judge Advocate General? True. 
I mean, she's probably the only lawyer within however many light years. Yes. So their choice is really, we're going to go with her, even though she kind of knows the defendant and they have a history. Or we can wait until we can get someone who's like, well, we got to check her docket. Oh, she's busy. And now we're going to fly her over here. Well, maybe that's part of why Kirk, why they wrote in Kirk's demand of right here, right now. You know, it's like, well, this is all we got. We got to deal with what we got. It is funny, though, that, you know, Kirk's old flame just happens to be on the star date, she, or star base. She happens to be the judge prosecutor. Like a bunch of his classmates are all hanging out in Starbase Eleven. It's like, why is this again? I don't even know. Starfleet's not as big a, you know. So let's think of of the military before World War Two, before okay. it got really, really big. Yeah. These guys who all went to West Point or who all went to the Naval Academy, they all knew each other mm-hmm. because the military was small, and so. You'll have, uh, like, if we look at the Civil War, you know, Meade and uh, Lee had been tentmates in the Mexican War. Mm-hmm. They knew each other. And so Lee frequently would know his adversary personally and would know how they think and how they were working. He had this informational advantage that he was able to use against them. And the same thing is true with the Army and the Navy and the the military before World War II, before it got big, you have these officers who all know each other. Mm-hmm. They worked together or they they did something, they served together at this point or that point. They've come in contact at the very least. And you see this in Star Trek. You know, captains meet and they're like, hey, I know you from the yeah. Volcanian expedition. <laughs> yes. It's crazy Volcanians. <laughs> and so I think it, it really is that kind of a small world. It's not the post- World War Two, really big military. Next generation. Yeah. <laughs> In which you got a bunch of anonymous people who really know each other. Right. Uh, yeah, she even says at the end of that scene, for the good of the service, she has to slap him down hard. So that kind of follows your uh, thinking there. More tension being built, right? More things against him. It's the service versus Kirk. And they want to make an example of Kirk, the first captain to be uh, court-martialed. Kirk returns to his office to find uh, his lawyer, Samuel T. Cogley. Uh, He's moved in with all of his books. This guy, he doesn't like computers. He only likes books. Because computers, they synthesize everything. They change your ideas of what what, uh, the law says. But here in these books, the law is everything. So we have this problem in in philosophy, in learning, in education, in the law, in which from time to time it seems that the common thing for people to do is to read synthesis, to read commentaries, to read um, what you see in the late Middle Ages, books of sentences. I'm just going to read the, the big quotes. It's like reading Bartley's and going, I'm an educated guy, I've read all these uh, authors. Yeah. I read one sentence by each of them. but And that's not real education. And the humanists come along, introduce the humanities to the university curriculum, but they also insist on reading the whole book. Not just a commentary, not just the best quotes, not just some excerpts. Read the whole thing. In fact, read it in the original language. So we're going to learn languages. We're going to read Latin books in Latin. We're going to read Greek books in Greek. We're not going to read everything uh, in one language. Unless it's Latin and Latin. Right. So I think the same thing is going on here. That Cogley is looking at the way computers are being used. And it's not, you know, so I can certainly read books. On a computer. On a Kindle. On a Kindle. And it's the book. Yeah. But I can also just get a synthesis. I can get the Cliffs Notes. 
version of the book. Or I can just read book reviews of the book. Or I can just read some journalist's commentary. The Wikipedia. I can read the Wikipedia entry on the book. Yeah. Or on an issue that's covered by the book. And I think that's... So instead of reading the law, maybe you're using the search key, right? I'm going to search for the keyword, um, let's say, red alert. Yeah. And I'll read up on references. And I only read the sentences of the pieces that refer to the red alert. Right. I don't read the, the whole headline. law. You read the headline. You read the headline. Or you read the key quote, and you don't put it in context. You, mm-hmm. don't, you don't have the general sense of how the law works. And you're not alert to all these other pieces that you should be able to apply, but that didn't reference the thing you were looking up. And so I think that's Cogby's objection. Not that computers are bad, or that technology is bad, but that it makes it too easy to go the simple route, to do keyword searches, to read reviews, to read just the headlines. Plus, like, you know, we've got books on tapes and everything, and I'm sure the computer could read it to us, but in that mechanicized voice that... They've got uh, good old Majel Barrett reading in. I wouldn't want to listen to anything she has to say, to be honest. And you, I can imagine someone sitting down and saying, uh, computer, what is the law on something? And she would go, synthesizing, you know, law states. And then instead of giving you lots of examples in the statute, she would just give you what to do. Uh-huh. Maybe. Hatch should be closed. All right, well, we close the hatch. Yeah. No one's asking you, well, in this context, should we close the hatch? What is the whole thinking on hatches? I don't know, though. I sort of feel like like there have been episodes where it's been like Volcanian use of this, you know, of this mm-hmm. law says this. The Romulan use of this, you know, law says this. You know, it sort of gives you like the different choices. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, again, is not the deep depth that probably some laws, you know, need to uh, need to have. And that's probably where Cogley's coming from, definitely. So Spock is called to the stand. <laughs> He uh, was given the Volcanian Scientific Legion of Armor. Oh, honor? Honor. I wrote armor. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Volcanian Scientific Legion of Honor. Twice decorated by Starfleet Command. Spock was. So we're still seeing Volcanian. Yes, we are. <laughs> Good thing Mud gave us that. That's great. I really hope Mud says it in, in, in the new Discovery. That would be amazing. It would. Now, so apparently it's one of these early early uh, features of the show before they had really worked out Vulcan. It was the first time we're hearing Starfleet Command. True. So they really haven't nailed down all these, the, the vocabularies of Star Trek, which yeah. obviously at some point we're going to call them Vulcans. Yes. That will stick. Thank God. <laughs> we'll have to consult the Romulanians and see what they think. <laughs> see what they think. Maybe they want to be called something else in the English tongue or basic or whatever. Um... Spock set confirms that he is a Vulcanian and that <laughs> Vulcanians do not speculate. Spock says that humans also have characteristics, much like uh, computers, and it is possible for Kirk to act out of panic or malice. It is not in his nature. Oh, so uh, then they bring in the personnel officer, who's just some random yeoman, who reconfirms the, the incident that uh, Finney had lost his position and that was still on his record. McCoy then takes the stand. He is there as a witness in psychology, but it appears that the prosecutor's questions are all asking him to speculate on hypotheticals and stuff. This hardly sounds like proving beyond the shadow of a doubt. No, let's just speculate on what a human might possibly do. Not a starship captain, no, just a human might do all of these things. So here, you know, in the law, 
typically you can you can only use speculation when you've got the expert witness. Mm -hmm. So he's the expert in psychology. So you can say, okay, so Finney had had this hostility. Isn't it possible that Kirk would find out about this hostility and then become hostile in return? And you know, so McCoy is kind of like, well, you know, I guess in theory, yeah, but that's not who Kirk is. Right, exactly. So we have two testimonies from our guys Kirk and Spock, or from McCoy and Spock about Kirk. And there's our triangle. Right. In which McCoy and, and Spock are saying, that's not who Kirk is. He, he could, would not or could not act in that fashion. So uh, Cogley has not questioned any of the uh, prosecution's witnesses and decides to skip everything. Decides to skip everything and jump to Kirk taking the stand. So the computer starts to read out all of Kirk's accommodations. The prosecutor asks to concede them all. Cogley starts to agree and then says, uh, "Why don't we have a chance to put them all on the record?" So they finish uh, finish reading two or three more before he finally is like, "Okay, but I don't want to take up too much of the court's time." Was there a red alert before you jettison the pod? Yes, says Kirk. Then Kirk gives this uh, nice speech. You know, I did not panic. I did what my experience and training told me to do, and I would do it again to save my ship. Nothing is more important than my ship, he says. So here we have this idea of this long training regimen, not only in preparation, but you can imagine that that Kirk's the kind of guy who, when the ship isn't doing anything right now, he's like, well, it drills to get, you know, the phaser times faster. Let's get some drills to get efficiency times, you know, better. And there's the early episode in which he's, you know, 97% yeah, McCoy's the like, Baylock one, yeah. Ah, you're getting it, you know, to uh, all this tension in the crew. Yeah. Gotta, gotta give him a break. No, no, we got higher percentages. Yeah, so that's the kind of guy Kirk is. Right? Yeah, definitely. So you can imagine that Kirk has not... This is not the first time he's been in this scenario. He has drilled for this. And uh, you watch Apollo 13, and they give the guys all these kinds of different you know, problems. Um, oh, the latch doesn't work. Oh, the thing doesn't work. Oh, the, the grapple doesn't hit. Oh, you, you canter 12 degrees to the you know aft. And, of course, Kobayashi Maru is that kind of thing. It's this training simulation. Mm-hmm. So you imagine these guys are getting this a lot. And Kirk is someone who you know, signs up for more or you know, gives his ship additional drills. Yeah. And he participates in them. And so this is not a, an unusual situation. Well, I haven't done this. So last week, we saw these science officers, engineering officers, who had to do guard duty yeah. on the planet. And they weren't terribly good at it. As though they hadn't been practicing and drilling for this kind of situation. Practicing and drilling for engineering problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not tactical problems. But not Kirk. He's practiced for stuff like this. So then, uh, Arlea Prosecution shows what the log shows. The log plainly shows that the, uh, that the jettison button was being pressed in yellow alert. Dun, dun, dun. See, look at this button on his... On his Chair. We've never seen this before. Where does Nor will we see it again. <laughs> Normally what you see, or, you know, from our vantage point, is Kirk says, yellow alert. And then, so, you know, the helmsman or the guy at the Sulu's chair says, yellow alert. And then he presses a button. We had that scene early on with the Blaylock episode. Yeah. Where, uh, I forget what his name now, but the guy who goes on to become general hospital guy. Yeah, yeah. It, he's just staring at the screen, you know, oh my goodness. And Sue has to reach over and press the yellow alert. Yeah. It's not something Kirk does on his chair. 
Now, nor should he be the one jettisoning <laughs> anything. Yeah, he really. He's got a lot of other things going on. He should be thinking about. And normally, a button like that, you'd have the little lid over it, so you wouldn't like put your coffee <laughs> down. <laughs> Jetsons. <laughs> you know, there's that scene in Apollo 13 where he put the no. Yeah, yeah, on yeah. Detaching the module. <laughs> yeah, you don't want him like flipping switches. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, there goes Harris. <laughs> yep. Oh, there he goes. Sorry, Finny. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> uh, here we are, back. 2929.9. Well, why do they do that? I think the reason is... Oh, sorry. They want to put the burden directly on Kirk, the character. Yes. Now, you know, as we can see, if we look at this case of uh, Fitzgerald, the captain's responsible for everything that happens. And if Kirk had said, Mr. Sulu, uh, bring us to yellow alert, Mr. Sulu pressed the button. And then he meant to say red alert, but then they're shaking. He's like, we got a tennis in that pod. Go to red alert. And you're like, wait, uh, that's the wrong order, Captain. Yeah. Uh, and then you see Sulu jettisons, and then Sulu hits red alert. You're like, nah, Captain, you're still to blame. But I think the audience would go like, you know, well, maybe that's Mr. Sulu's problem. Yeah, exactly. But in reality, you know, the way these things actually happen, whether it's uh, looking at Sully and the, the plane that had to land in the Hudson or looking at Fitzgerald or looking at any of these other kinds of situations, the captain is the one who takes the burden because yeah. he's the one who ultimately decides how things are supposed to go down and how his men are trained. Yes. So if his, if, if his men weren't properly trained for this procedure, you know, when he gave confusing orders then, you know, it's the captain's fault. If the, if the captain said, oh, jettison the pod, go to red alert, and your man hits red alert, and then jettisons the pod, he's been trained correctly. Right. Credit to you. But that's difficult for an audience to follow. Not every audience's member has been through these kinds of situations and knows that. So I think they personally make the captain press the buttons right. to reinforce for the audience that the captain is responsible. Well, on plus, as you were saying before the show, like, you know, we're talking about episodic TV here, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not going to be the kind of thing that we're going to ever see again. And nor did they think that, A, anyone would probably remember, or B, that 50 years later there'd be two idiots on a <laughs> podcast, like, breaking everything down, going, well, uh, this is a very interesting set of circumstances. <laughs> I did not think that this should happen. Um, <laughs> I'd never see them do it again. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Now, the guys doing Discovery, they know. <laughs> That's true. I hope so. They know that people are going to watch this. They're going to freeze frame. They're going right. to advance slowly. They're going to, if the door opens differently between two different episodes, they're going to mm -hmm. say, why does the door open differently? And so they've got continuity directors who are looking after that yeah. stuff. But in the 60s, you're thinking, well, first of all, no one's going to remember next week yeah. that, that it worked this way. And secondly, when's the next time we're going to go to Yellow World if they're going to remember back this? Yeah. No one's going to remember. And at this point, too, even if you pretend whatever your head cannon is at that point, you know what I mean? You can always be every time he is yellow alert, he's just flicking his finger or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. All we're saying, Discovery, is that be ready. We're coming for you. <laughs> uh, anyway, like I said, back from commercial, 2929.9. Reeling still from the computer evidence, uh, even his attorney is perhaps suggesting that they change their plea. Even Kirk starts to doubt himself over the overwhelming evidence. Did I do it? I don't think I did. It doesn't make sense if I would have... No, he says. I did not. I know what I did, he says. Spock then calls down and says that the megalith scan on the computer found nothing. <laughs> it's another piece of garbage that we'll never hear about again. Uh, <laughs> the megalith scan on the computer. Kirk thanks him for his hard work. 
hopefully you can beat your next captain at chess. Chess? Thinks Spock. Jamie arrives at Kirk's place. She begs him, uh, please take the ground assignment. Don't go to trial. But Kirk says, nope, it's too late. But is glad that she doesn't hold him responsible anymore. Is then, it, so this is a reminder. These are This is a world of, of strict rules strictly enforced. Right? So the guy earlier doesn't close the circuit, ruins his chance to be captain. And Kirk's thinking, you know, I, I can't take the reprimand. It, it'll be too damaging. Yep. I've got, it's all or nothing. And he knows he's right. Mm-hmm. Or he believes he's right. Yeah. But I mean, he knows it in the sense that we know anything about the things that we've experienced ourselves. Yes, exactly. So he's going he's gonna to push forward and it may not work out well, but that's where he's got to go. Exactly. Back on the starship, Spock, uh, Spock is playing chess and Bones rushes in saying, I had to see it to believe it myself. We well, your friend's going to go to, go to jail, space jail? <laughs> I don't know. And, uh, and you're here playing chess. Spock now reveals that he's beaten the computer four times. And this is now the fifth. You're the most cold-blooded person I've ever seen. Why, thank you. Why, thank you, he says. Uh, he says, mechanically, the computer's running perfect, but logically, it has lapsed. The computer is wrong. And they rush off to beam down. Excite... Go ahead. I, I was always wondering... I mean, I, maybe it's just they need to get from point A to point B. But the mere fact that Kirk said chess, and then... Spock's like, ah, oh, yes. Like, this is how you're going to test the computer? I'm going to play it in chess? Like, all my other diagnostics have failed. But perhaps if I played chess... Exactly. <laughs> what if I tested it logically? Again, you know, for the for the people watching at home. Because otherwise saying, uh, well, this time I didn't do the megalith scan. I did the... Uh, <laughs> the heptolith scan. <laughs> right? Or the, uh, the Freud scan <laughs> to test its logic. Uh, or the Vulcanian. <laughs> I did the Vulcanian span this time. Worked out great. <laughs> I found some fluctuations in the Eddy currents. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, back to the pro- uh, back to the tribunal. The- oh wait, sorry. Excitement builds as Cogley working on something now, and Spock has found the logic of the computer to be false. It also gives us hope that Kirk won't be sent up the river. Uh, back in the tribunal, the prosecution rests. Bones and Spock arrive just after Cogley rests. And he's like, no, we have the arrival of new evidence. Please stop. He tells us about the rights of a man in the Constitution, the Magna Carta, in the fundam- fundamental declarations of the Martian colonies. It was one more. <laughs> well, there were like four or five, but yeah. like I love the fundamental declarations of the Martian colonies. That was amazing. Too real, one fake, as we've seen before. They do that a lot. So, uh, the witness is a machine. And a man has a right to confront all of his witnesses. The machine has no rights. But a man does, he says. Uh, I wrote, he, it was an inspired bit of casting. I really like this guy as, uh, as Cogley. I think he's just like the perfect kind of rumply... I don't know. He's just, he's fun. He's, he's like, he's, a, he's, he's cool to watch. Although he's setting some terrible precedents. And the next generation, when they want to shut down data and take them apart, the burden of proof is now, man, yeah, right, exactly. the machine has no rights. Good point, good point. It's all Cogley's fault. Wow. Yes, it's Cogley's fault. Uh, commercial! They have now recon- reconvened aboard the Enterprise because Cogley has an idea. They have Spock put back on the stand. 
essentially, in the briefing room. He tells them about the chess and how he was the one who programmed it. He should have only been able to stalemate, but no! He and beat it. And he's got his chess set. <laughs> was it there? Yes, and I'm not sure whether it's there for the audience or whether it's there for the, like, well, show me this 3D chess set. I'm, I'm not familiar with this yeah, game. Yeah, how does that work? <laughs> I like shuffleboard myself. Spock says that someone has either adjusted the programming either deliberately or purposefully. Cogley throws back at the prosecution all those all the hypotheticals that she was saying. Hypothetically, she says, he says, Mr. Spock. Could it have possibly been that? Uh, the only three people who could have possibly changed these logs are Spock himself, Kirk, and before his death, Mr. Finney. The records officer. That's right. Now, we've never heard of a records officer, no. and we'll never hear about a records officer again. <laughs> Probably not. And yet he's a lieutenant commander. Ooh. So, I mean, he's up there with Bones and Spock in terms of the rank. Right. He's a serious guy, I mean, and, and Mr. Scott. So you'd think, here's a serious ranking dude. How come we've never seen him before? Right, exactly. And we'll never see him again. Now, theoretically, your next records officer might just be a lieutenant. Yeah. But uh, I thought, well, here's a... Pretty oh, the other thing they do, speaking of lieutenant commanders, when they mention Spock's rank, apparently he's a lieutenant commander in this episode, even though he's got the extra braids, more braids than uh, Scotty or, or McCoy on his sleeve, uh -huh. and he has been referred to as a commander before, although if you don't say lieutenant, I mean, both of them could be referred to as commander. Yeah. But uh, in canon, if you look at the records, go to Memory Alpha, go to other sources, they say he's full commander. Mm -hmm. So I would be skeptical of the computer once again in this episode. <laughs> Someone is menaced with the computer. Absolutely. Um, the search for Finney was only a phase one search. However, says Cogley, it predisposes that the injured party wants to be found. I.e., using simple logic, Cogley has concluded that Finney must not be dead. So we go back to we go to the bridge. The computer can hear any sound occurring on the ship, including heartbeats. Apparently, we hear all the heartbeats of everyone on on the ship. Bones will use apparently a microphone to listen and cut out everybody else's heartbeats on board. The heartbeat also gives us a nice soundtrack to the tension on uh, on board at this point. It's like, does boom, it? Boom. Although it's so synthy. Boom, boom. Well, right. Uh, you know, I'm kind of like. Uh... How do you know these are real heartbeats? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. Um, so we get down to one single heartbeat. It must be true that Finney is alive. Is that what we're hearing? He tells the Commodore to stay on the bridge. It's my problem, says Kirk, and I'll take care of it. Because we want Kirk to have the fight at the end, not the Commodore. <laughs> so It would have made just as much sense if they, if they hadn't narrowed it down quite so precisely. And, you know, everyone's going to go search for him. But Kirk, who knows Finney the best, figures out the right place to go. That would have been just as good without the, no, no, you guys all stay here, help us on the bridge. I'm going to wander down there by myself. That's right. Don't worry, it'll all work out. So then there's a weird log entry, but it's not a log entry. It's a weird voiceover that happens here. Uh, he tells us that Cogley went down to get Jamie. And we do see that he leaves during yeah. the trial. I must beam down too. No, no, the trial's not over yet. I have important court business. Well, I'm not going to ask what that is, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> down you go. I guess we'll let that go. Uh, Kurt, then alone on B-decked, armed with a phaser, calls for Finney. 
the rest listen to the events aboard. Notice they, they, they listen, not watch. Yeah, they're not watching the screen. No, they are not. Uh, Finney calls to Kirk over the loudspeaker. Suddenly he comes out of hiding, claiming that they all conspired against him to keep him out of command. He's clearly a man in total control of his faculties. <laughs> Just a little bit paranoid. That's right. Faculties. He was a professor, get it? He was a Okay. Ben decides not to take Kurt's life, but something he loves more than that. His ship. Dun, dun, dun. Now, it was at this point in the script where they actually brought Jamie aboard, but then they never, they never put it in to the, to the episode. Yeah. Which is why we get the crazy voiceover. Because he's telling us what Cockney and Jamie are doing, but yet it never appears in the... Whoops. So, yeah, so uh, we find out that Ben has zapped power from the primary energy. Their orbit has continued to decay. Spock tries to get the tribunal off the ship, but Commander Stone says, No, no, we gotta hear this witness out! You can just imagine being one of those other guys in the tribunal, like, No, we should really get the hell off the ship. What are you... Uh... Although, their orbit shouldn't decay that fast. Well... Apparently, it's, de it's decaying extra fast. That Somebody even makes that point of, like, it's decaying faster than it should be. Uh, well, of course, what he could have done is, you know, programmed in a, a, you know, like, little angling toward the planet before the power cuts out. Right. That could have happened. Plausible. It's plausible. It's possible. Kirk takes this opportunity to... Uh, oh, so Kirk tells Ben that Jamie is aboard. Why did you do that? Yells Ben. Kirk takes this opportunity to fight. And fight they do. We got uh, we got more of uh, Kirk's ripped shirt as we've seen before. This is... Kirk is full on in Kirk style fighting. Oh, yeah. So he's got the, the, the big punch. He's got the double-handed pound. Yep. He's got, he's got the judo throw across the room. He does the one thing... When one of his favorite moves is used by Finney here. When he jumps on him to get that uh, the phaser. Yeah. Uh, beaten and sobbing, Finney tells Kirk where the sabotage was done. Then we get another weird voiceover telling us all about it. And so he's going to effect repairs. But all he's doing is pulling out cords. <laughs> well, what so, is he doing? <laughs> it's got to be that what he did is he shorted out the system. Yeah. By... Connect, making circuits where there shouldn't be... Like, I'm just going to connect this power source to the bulkhead. They'll never get power now because the I basically electrified the the external plates of the ship. Kind of what, what uh, Scott did to drive off the giant men. The giant eight men. So I imagine that like the power, instead of going where it was supposed to go, is now making the ship electronic. <laughs> so suddenly... Uh... Energy is back into the into the primary energy source thing. Uhura takes the helm again. The second time we've seen Uhura no, take the helm. It's actually like the fourth or the fifth time. Oh really? Yeah. So she's done it naked now. Yeah. She did it in. Uh, um, now see, I had a list. Uh, but yeah, it's like the fourth or the fifth time. And you know the thing is, I was thinking about this when they bring in Chekhov in season two. Yeah. There'll be no reason to have the the helm vacant, yeah. Because instead, right now it's filled by a kind of irrelevant character. In fact, there's no Sulu in this episode. Yeah, it's always some different guy. And in fact, the helm's person in this episode is also a helm's person in the next episode too. There you go. Another part of the twofer they got. So or three fur really. Once you put a main character in the helm position, then he's not going to be missing at requiring Ahura to get into that chair. Yeah. So that'll be the, I think, the end of Ahura. At helm. The tribunal dismisses itself 
and a very happy ending. There's that weird scene between Stone and Ariel where she's like, it's okay with me that I lost this big career moment in my life. You know what I mean? It's like, mm, that's the biggest trial you've had in your life and you lost it. I don't know if you should be so happy. Anyway, so we got another cute scene here. I only believe in justice and justice was done. I guess. Okay. Another cute scene here between Ariel and, uh, and Kirk who then kisses on the bridge? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that is a breaking protocol no matter what he says. Uh, he runs a tight ship. Exactly. They can withstand a little bit of hanky-panky. Exactly. All right. Well, there we go. That is the end I of that I did episode. like how when he comes back to his chair, Spock and McCoy are looking straight ahead. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Not even going to say anything. Yeah, she was a uh, pretty good lawyer. Yeah. Pretty good lawyer. Yeah, pretty good lawyer. Yeah, I think she was. She looked Obviously, good. Obviously, that's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, the final day of filming on this episode, uh, it was day seven, uh, continuing with the shooting of one line at a time that uh, Cogley was doing. They brought uh, Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly uh, back on, uh, back in, uh, spending the morning picking up the close-ups for that scene, and then the last shot was taken at 11.30. 15 minutes later, Daniels, again having no prep days, began filming the menagerie. Boom, boom, boom. Court Martial was made for 17 grand, less than the studio's per episode allowance. This is great because uh, this brought the first season deficit down to 33,000, as opposed to the uh, 50 that it was after last week's episode. This is also, by the way, the second week in a row where uh, Star Trek won either part or all of its uh, time slot. It lost to Bewitched in the first half, but in the second half. Uh, Went up against uh, uh, My Three Sons and CB Night, CBS Thursday Night Movie. Bewitched is pretty tricky. I know. You can't beat Elizabeth Montgomery. <laughs> Elizabeth Montgomery and two different Darrens. That's for sure. Well, that about wraps it up for another great episode. Anything we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? We hit it all. I think we hit it all, too. I can't imagine anything else. So next week, we will somehow be getting into the menagerie. Not quite sure how we're going to talk about it, because so much of the episode we have already talked about in episode one of our show. Well, this is what I think we should do. Hit me. I think we should watch both parts. Okay, definitely. And only talk about the new stuff. Okay. And leave the cage alone. We've already talked about it. Do we need to talk about how the cage... Okay. Well, I mean, if there's something that we see that suddenly becomes relevant that yes. we didn't talk about, yeah, we can bring it up. But I think our focus should be on the new stuff. Well, with the hardest time that I've had editing the cage, I pretty much know everything that we <laughs> talked about in that episode. So, not worried about it. So, thanks for tuning in. Uh, thanks for listening up. As always, find us on the tweets, find us on the YouTubes, and uh, anywhere else that might be a really fun place. Subspace Radio. Subspace Radio for you to find us. Uh, this is me saying goodbye. You too can say goodbye. Peace and long life. Peace and long life. And we'll see you all next week for another fancy episode of The Brothers Trek About. Trekabouts.